interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Now, I've read a lot of books and articles talking about what's wrong with healthcare, but one of the best I've ever come across comes from today's guest. John Cockert is an AQR Capital Management Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. In After the ACA, Freeing the Market for Healthcare, John not only touches on many of the ways that government is causing healthcare to be more expensive, less convenient, and less effective than it could be, he also explains how a free market would address those shortcomings. So I'm excited to talk to John about uh, what a free market in healthcare might look like and why we should move in that direction rather than the direction we've been heading of more government control. So with that, John, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Before we get to health care, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about just what a free market is and how it promotes efficiency, innovation, and high quality at a reasonable cost. So if you could just take like a common industry that's basically uh, works as a free market in the U.S. today, could you talk a little bit about what it is and how these market forces actually work? Well, to the extent that there is anything that's a free market in the U.S. today, right. uh, some some things are freer than others. Um, I think one of the the two big forces are people's choice and suppliers' competition. Um, if people don't, people have to have choice, and um, when you have a market uh, where, like, say, restaurants, where people go to the ones they like and don't go to the ones they don't like and vote with their wallets. Uh, that promotes uh, efficiency, that promotes good service, better food, and lower prices, uh, and product variety, and uh, which is just amazing, you know, different kinds of restaurants for different kinds of tastes. And on the, But you also need a supply end. Uh, you know, uh, Soviet Russia had uh, people could go to whichever restaurant they wanted to, but you couldn't start a restaurant, and the result was horrible food. Uh, so the other key element is um, is free markets on the supply end. People uh, are free to, when they, when they see a niche and think they can make some more money serving people better, start a new kind of restaurant, uh, operate their businesses as they want, uh, cut costs where they see costs can be cut, and uh, the result uh, is um, lots of variety, great food, and low prices, and a, and a dynamic industry. And so that's what we, all the things we don't see in healthcare, we do sort of see in restaurants, and those are the two ingredients. Okay, so let's turn then to the healthcare system. And before we start talking about the way that it operates, I just want to, so everybody's clear, kind of lay out the pieces. We have customers and providers. Uh, it would be the patients on the one hand and doctors, hospitals, nurses, and so on. Um, but we have at least one other set of major players, and that's going to be third-party payers, insurance companies and the government primarily. And you could also say that the government given its role as a regulator, plays a very heavy role, both at the federal state levels. So let's look at how those pieces fit together. And I want to start with the insurance market. And I want to contrast um, how government is leading the insurance market to operate differently in healthcare than it would in a free market. Uh, yeah. So we, we've kind of uh, taken this thing called insurance. It's, very, it's funny. I, 
some of the insurance markets you and your uh, listeners probably know, you know, home insurance, car insurance, those are not free markets, but they're a lot freer than health markets, and they sort of work the way you think of insurance as working. Um, your car insurance doesn't pay for oil changes. Your home insurance doesn't pay to uh, paint the walls. Uh, what they do is that they protect your pocketbook from really big unplanned uh, random expenses. Health insurance somehow has turned into this uh, thing that that uh, pays for everything, or I mean, you pay for everything, but via your health insurance company. Uh, why did that happen? Well, that happened not as a result of a free market, but that happened as a result of a whole bunch of regulations pushing things that, things that way. And, and the result is um, the, the horrible inefficiency that you see. People um, not in charge of directing their healthcare dollars um, is, is how hospitals get away with charging such huge amounts of money. I mean, just imagine if, if you thought your car needed an oil change, what you had to do was go to your primary oil uh, oil change consultant, your, your mechan- primary mechanic, who would then decide if you needed an oil change after you waited six weeks to see him for a couple minutes, and then he would send you off to the oil change specialist, and you would fax in forms in, uh, in, in six copies and so on and so forth. It would just be a disaster. Well, that's what we've done to health insurance. So, yeah, health, health insurance can and should be, um, something that, that has a big deductible like car insurance and, and is there to protect your wallet uh, from the economic consequences of health impact of health expenses, not a way for paying for things. Just the fact that we, we say you need health insurance to have access is ridiculous. Access means I've got money and someone's willing to help me. So why do we use health insurance to pay for everything? Uh, well, that's, this is where the long, sad story of regulations uh, starts. Um, historically, it started in World War II. Uh, the government had put in price and wage controls. Companies couldn't attract workers, so they got the uh, IRS to agree that uh, companies could provide health insurance and that they, could, uh, call, they wouldn't call that wages and there would be a tax deduction for company-provided health insurance. This was back in the old days when health insurance was cheap because they couldn't do that much for you. You know, you got a lot of diseases, you just died quickly and cheaply. It wasn't that big a deal. Well, once something has a tax deduction, now there's an incentive for, uh, to, to salt it on. So if, if, in fact, there was a tax deduction for employer-provided oil changes, next thing you know, you'd have uh, employer-provided oil changes. And you'd have this uh, sad thing that happens with insurance that um, it's tied to your job so that when you lose your job or, or choose to leave, then you lose your health insurance and might have a pre-existing condition. That's all a, a figment of regulation. And, and then down through the ages, this got worse and worse and worse. I mean, that the ACA is not some brand new horrible regulation, it's just sort of a last and long string of, of patching one thing on top of another and, and the whole thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, it sounds like you're saying that, in effect, we use insurance to pay for too much, but usually the story that we're told and part of the story that we were told in pursuit of the ACA, what will often be called Obamacare, was that actually the real problem is that we have a bunch of greedy insurance companies who don't want to pay for anything. They certainly don't want to pay for sick people, so they drop you as soon as you get uh, sick. They deny you uh, coverage for illnesses you really have. How do you reconcile those two different views? 
Well, those two things are just not true. <laughs> so uh, insurance uh, uh, contracts, individual insurance contracts um, of the sort provided by free markets, you know, people don't want to be dropped when they get sick. So an insurance contract that says, hey, we'll cover you for a year, but if you get sick, you're on your own is obviously less appealing to customers than one that says sign up and we you will uh, we will keep you no matter what. And, that, and that's in fact how uh, even the remaining private health insurance worked. It's called guaranteed renewable. And, and your life insurance works the same way. If you sign up for life insurance when you're young and healthy, it includes the right to keep that life insurance no matter how sick uh, you later on get if you become a bad deal for the insurance company. Um, so those, those things, now, why, why uh, the, the problem is, of course, by forcing employer-provided insurance, then we get into this problem. Similarly, um, the pre-existing conditions, the insurance, obviously, if you're already sick, an insurance company isn't going to take you on. Now, wh why is that? It's because they're not allowed to charge a high enough price. You, you only, people are only denied insurance. You think about how crazy, what market is there? where they won't give it to you at any price. Well, the reason is because they are legally not allowed to charge the price that would make it um, worthwhile for them to give it to you. So that one, too, is a creature of regulations. So just to stick on the pre-existing conditions issue for a second, because obviously this was one of the big arguments uh, in the lead-up to Obamacare. Uh, in a free market, as you suggest, one of the things people would do to protect themselves from pre-existing conditions is that they'd have an individual insurance contract, not through their employer. They'd be able to carry it across state lines, and then they could get it guaranteed renewable so that uh, you know they can continue to purchase it. Um, but what about those people who say you know they had a rough year, they couldn't afford their contract, and they, they you know now it's two years later, and in the meantime they got sick. Uh, what's going to happen to those people if they, you know, now need to buy insurance again and can't? Yeah. Now, first of all, before we start really getting into insurance, we're going to put into place a, uh, a free market in health care so that um, you don't walk into hospitals and they send this $500 Band-Aids. So um, w once the sort of the Southwest Airlines and Walmarts and so forth can come into the health care market, now it's simply down to money. Um, you know, you, you can get served. The problem is you might not have enough money. Uh, and money is a much easier problem to solve in a, in a competitive market when things are much cheaper. Uh, then, yeah, um, now it's down to money. So if you, so two things. One, um, a, a free insurance market would, would and did, by the way, um, decouple this year's insurance from the right to have insurance in the future. United Health actually offered this product. You could have um, not insurance right now, but you could have a promise from United Health that you could buy insurance in the future with no insurance today. Uh, and that would be very attractive. So if, if you say, you know what, I'm just going to go without for a couple of years, I'm coming in a rough, rough patch. It's very much, and so you skip your, say, $1,000 a month insurance policy, uh, paying $50 a month to keep the right to future insurance would be a valuable thing to you. And a lot of people might uh, be willing to do that. Uh, but then, uh, yes, so um, then what happens to those people? Well, first of all, they lose a lot of money. Um, now, once it's down to money and not health, we can be a little more hard-hearted. If, if somebody says, I'm just not going to have home insurance because, you know, tough, I don't have, I don't have it. Well, what happens when his house burns down? Uh, well, he, he's out the money. Um, and then we take care of people. So, so people who are genuinely, um, uh, you know, impoverished, completely out of money, yes, 
we're not we're not completely you don't have to get rid of all social safety net in order to make the insurance that you and me buy work uh functionally well in a in a in a uh, free market economy uh so yeah there's a system of charity care for people who are poor destitute uh, mentally incompetent and so forth um but again that's you know taking care of the bottom 10% the people who after everything refuse to buy health insurance and so forth that's not a problem that we need to to take over the health insurance market for every single citizen of this country to solve. So you raised, I'd like now to turn to the issue of uh, the supply of health care and the way in which that's been distorted. So what? Uh, if, if I may, yeah, and this is a very underappreciated issue. It's kind of interesting that, you know, in the face of the $500 band-aids, uh, all the discussion around Obamacare has been about health insurance as if there's just a problem with insurance, but the underlying market works great. Uh, the most that we've talked about the underlying market is the idea that some sort of price controls are going to magically make us spend less. Um, but that's the real the real problem uh, is that the, you can't just walk into a hospital and get seen the way you can take your car to a car repair and get seen or the way you can take your vet and your dog to the vet and get seen. Anyway, go ahead with your question. Well, my question was, just give us kind of an overview of the way in which the supply has been um, distorted and the way in which competition has been restricted in the healthcare industry. Well, of course, one of the big problems with the supply distortion is that um, so much, the typical person in the country is not paying their own way. They're on an employer-provided group plan uh, with first-dollar coverage, so they are not uh, seeing any benefits to the cost. They just go in and they they don't care what it costs. Uh, so um, that you know, right away, you've got an incentive for for horrible inefficiency when that's the case. Um, then it's it's uh, very hard very hard for a um, hospital to set up transparent price different pricing for people and for insurance companies. If the insurance company finds out they gave you a deal, then the insurance company wants the deal too. Uh, then we have this um, business between the governments, the hospitals, and the insurance companies. So the government wants to mandate all sorts of things. For example, that emergency room care will be free uh, to poor people. The, the way they take care of poor people, they don't. They don't like transparently say, okay, let's spend some taxpayer money. We're going to take care of poor people. Great. No. They say everybody must be able to go to an emergency room and get treated for free. Well, then the hospital has to pay for that somewhere. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from overcharging insurance companies. Uh, Well, the insurance companies, the only way they're going to sit down for that is if they're protected from competition. Because, of course, a competitive insurance company could say, we're not paying extra. We're going to go for a lower rate. Okay, so now we've protected the insurance companies from competition in order that the hospitals can cross-subsidize Medicare, Medicaid, and emergency room care from the insurance companies. And now you can see the, the whole castle of cards and how it would be undermined if they let people just come in and, and uh, compete on price and pay for what it's worth. Okay, so yeah, let's break that down a little bit. So one of the things that... <laughs> it's a big mess, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It really is, but uh, I think it's helpful to get this kind of overview. Now, one of the things you seem to be saying, and I, I think is really important for people to get, is that the fact that we go into the doctor uh, or we go into the hospital and we pay virtually nothing, you know, what is it, I think 15 cents or so on the dollar uh, for our health care, 
to most people, that sounds like a good thing. I mean, we we want to be spending less on healthcare, right? But what you're suggesting is that's actually making problems worse. Well, it depends who this we is. Uh, somebody is paying that money. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, you you may have a great employer-provided plan that means you don't have to pay for health care, but your company is paying outrageous premiums to the insurance company, and all that money could be going into your pocket. We're talking serious amounts of money. You know, we're talking ten to $20,000 a year greater salary you could have if the company were not uh, spending that on health care. So you are spending the money, you're just doing it horrendously inefficiently. And, uh, and then, the, you know, even if you're cost conscious, the other people in your office have, have no incentive to be cost conscious when they, when they spend your money. So that's an important point. So partly why it's better if I'm the one directly spending that money in healthcare, you're saying is, I'm actually going to be asking questions about what does that cost? And can I save money here? And is this test really worth it? Yeah, and not just the famous, is the test worth it? Let's look hard at health care. There's, there's this idea that people, that health care is just a need. And, you know, it's like you had a broken arm, you need it fixed. Health care is a complicated personal service. And um, uh, there's all sorts of ways to save money if people are, without changing the ultimate health quality at all. Are you willing to wait a couple hours in line? Are you willing to have your MRI at two o'clock in the morning across town rather than this afternoon in a fancy swank office right next to your work? You know, all these seems like silly things, but let's look at airlines. Um, the difference between willing to be to go next Thursday in seat 23C versus to go this afternoon in business class is, is enormous. Uh, and yet, um, you know, if you just had a, a federal, we'll, we will pay for your air travel needs. Uh, nobody has any incentive to say, well, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm going to go and see 23C. <laughs> no, I, you know, I want business class and I want it now. Um, and those, the, as in airlines, the, the margins of cost that are just about the convenience and the other aspects of health delivery uh, beyond, uh, you know, exactly what test do you have and so forth are, are, are huge. Now, you talk about the importance of competition in healthcare, but one of the things that we'll often hear is healthcare is different because competition assumes that I can comparison shop and go somewhere else. But people will say, look, you're in the hospital, you need a test, you're going to die. What are you going to say? No, ship me off you know, to the hospital six miles away. Uh, how do you answer that kind of objection? Yeah, uh, this is the problem of healthcare policy by anecdote. Oh, a guy with a heart attack, you know, he can't negotiate for prices. Um, well, uh, let's think about how much healthcare really is uh, delivered to people with sudden, unexpected problems, unexpected and, and unexpectable problems that need immediate care uh, and leave you no room for negotiation. Answer, you know, next to nothing of it. Uh, most of our healthcare expenses are long-term chronic conditions. Uh, we, we, you know, if you have diabetes, for example, you know, we're not talking about something you need to fix in the next five minutes. Uh, furthermore, we are all human beings. Um, we're all going to get sick at some point. Uh, so um, you might want to think a little bit ahead of time about what your healthcare arrangements are. So even if at the moment of having a heart attack, you uh, you can't negotiate, you certainly have every incentive to sign up with a competitive provider that's going to offer you a good deal uh, You know when, when the time comes to get heart attacks, uh, just like you know, kind of everything else works in our economy. 
Now, one of the things that makes people uncomfortable, I think, is that you know we're talking about competition, people getting different kinds of healthcare, the profit motive, in a context where people are, think we shouldn't be focused on competition, but care and, and helping each other, and a doctor who's not trying to line his pockets, but trying to do what's best for me as the patient. How do you think people can appreciate that those two aren't really mutually exclusive? Well, uh, you know, one way to appreciate it is if you're any sort of free market economist and, and you look at the uh, incentives in our healthcare industry, you would predict that the whole thing had fallen apart years and years ago. Uh, we do really need to say a thank you to the devotion of doctors and nurses out there who, who that's the only way I can understand how this thing works at all. But you asked sort of a, a deeper uh, question, which is, you know, is, is there something maybe unethical about, um, you know, doctors shouldn't be motivated by money? Well, sorry, money makes the world go round. Uh, and and most of what we want for healthcare is not sort of some sense of minimum absolute need. Most of what we want for healthcare are, are sort of improved quality of life choices. Um, so, you know, money is the incentive that makes people deliver high quality personal services. There's nothing wrong or immoral about charging money. I don't think it's immoral that, um, that the, the butcher and the baker demand money to feed me and, and being able to eat is a need that is, you know, usually much more pressing than uh, needing to be he- uh, healed of, of most, uh, most conditions. Well, it's funny you mention that. There's a really famous Adam Smith quote where he says, you know, it's not from benevolence that the butcher or baker supplies with our goods. And that quote always irked me a little bit uh, because it's true that they're not doing it as an act of self-sacrifice. But if you've ever dealt with your local neighborhood butcher or baker, it's usually a pretty, they're happy to see a smile on your face from you getting the food. And they're happy to get a check that allows them to put bread on their table. And that we shouldn't make the sharp distinction as if it's, I'm lining my pockets and have no desire to see other people succeed or be happy. Yeah, and uh, you know when you look at um, look at how how modern corporations in the U.S. bend over backwards to make uh, the customer service to make customers happy. You know, think about how Amazon.com treats returns as opposed to how the TSA and the post office treat you. Um, the the, the profit making sector actually is. Um, very interested in making people happy. So there's, there's uh, nothing wrong with that. So one of the things that you raise in your paper that I very rarely see talked about is the issue of the way in which licensing restrictions in medicine actually can drive up the price in a way that doesn't make any sense. And as soon as you say that, people say, whoa, whoa, what do you want? A bunch of quacks uh, leaving scalpels inside of us. But take us through this idea that um, we are actually potentially worse off from the government regulating who can uh, prescribe us medicine and who can perform medical services. Yeah, so a lot of what occupational licensing does is restrict the supply of, of people and drive up the prices. And in fact, the government's doing a lot of uh, driving up prices. Now, right, that doesn't, um, one can take. Um, an intermediate step. I mean, our, our country is so screwed up that we don't have to go to this, uh, you know, just which cloud of libertarian nirvana do we live on? Uh, so, um, yeah, sure. So, uh, doc, there will be occupational licensing, but that doesn't mean that uh, the numbers of doctors have to be so rigidly controlled. And that doesn't mean that um, exact, that so many uh, procedures require a doctor. 
Um, you know, there's many, many things that a, a nurse practitioner could do if only they were allowed to. Uh, prescribing medicines, for example, you know, they just when you know what you need, it often you're just going through an extra two hundred dollars just to keep the doctors uh, happy. And uh, you know, our, our government does all sorts of things. To, we talk about cost control. Here's an example: immigration limits. Uh, so there's a lot of you know doctors and nurses around the world, perfectly qualified and pass all the tests, would love to come to the U.S., but we keep them out. Why do we keep them out? Well, because we want to keep wages up in the U.S. Well, <laughs> keeping doctor and nurses' wages up in the U.S. is one of the big things that drives costs up. So make up your mind. What do you want, cost up or cost down? One of the things that we hear is that the real cause, at least a major cause of skyrocketing costs, is innovation in healthcare. The idea is that, you know, we're getting these incredibly expensive machines that are extending our lives, but there, I mean, there's a price that's going to come with that. And yet, when we look at other markets, we see that innovation usually leads to lower costs. So what, what's really going on with this idea of technology? How does it affect costs in a regular market and then in a distorted market like healthcare? In a horribly distorted and, and protected market. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's, you know, from an economic point of view, no cost ever uh, goes up. Uh, it just goes down. A machine's invented and something that used to cost infinity now costs something and people demand more of it. Um, you know, it's, it's the only reason it's a cost is because uh, somebody else is paying for it. Uh, if you if uh, you know a, a great new computer is invented and you choose to buy it out of your own pocket, some somehow that's good. So it's really just a, a question of how we look at it, as opposed to uh, I'd say something fundamental. Now it, it's a fundamental problem when the government has said I'm paying for all this stuff, uh, and then and then we have to tax uh, people for it. So it's really not a, an economic issue. It's a, it's an issue about um, government finances. So, I mean, you'll have certain things like, say, an MRI scan, which are extraordinarily expensive today. Is there any reason to think, though, in a free market, just the sheer bottom line cost of getting one of those scans w would fall? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Moore's Law can apply to medical devices if it's allowed to do so. And, and we do all sorts of things to keep the prices of those things uh, are, are artificially high. Um, so, yeah, the MRI devices and the way they're used, you know. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Hospitals, uh, uh, hospitals that charge money, which uh, seem to have to do it outside the U.S., like the tourist hospitals, they run the MRI machines 24 hours a day, and you get a big discount if you do it at 2 in the morning. Well, our unionized nurses get paid, uh, you know, double time if they have to work at 2 in the morning, so we, so we don't do that. So, you know, even there, there's lots of ways to make things cheaper. Or are you allowed to read the, send the scans to be read in India, or must the scans be read in the U.S. by a licensed doctor? Well, there's another way that you can make this stuff cheaper than we decide not to. Now, I'd say the major counter art, uh, example that you would hear from people replying to the idea that a free market actually would make healthcare better is that, in fact, if we look around the world, what we see are um, medical systems that are more socialized and more government controlled, and yet they get better results more cheaply. What do you think of that? <laughs> uh, I, I, I love it when you ask a question that uh, we both know I know the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I, I, I'm not trying to be leading. I'm more trying to be devil's advocate because I think one of the things will often I, I I don't think these questions get asked enough to people who can actually answer them. They usually get asked to college free market supporters who have no clue what to say. Right. No, and these, you are exactly right. It's worth uh, these are all the sort of standard objections, and it's worth thinking through those standard objections. 
Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll give you some attempt at an answer. So, you know, since when does the U.S. always have to follow what everybody else does? Um, uh, so, first of all, uh, we do not defend the system pre-ACA. It is true that other countries spent less than we did, although uh, getting cancer or needing a hip replacement in England was, was a bad idea because your outcomes aren't as good. But they spent less with far more socialized systems. So wh what does that mean for us? Well, one thing it means for us is our system pre-ACA was already so bloated, distorted, and regulated that it was so bad that it was, e that it was competing with uh, European socialized systems. But also, let's look back at other industries. So, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, every government in the world ran a monopolized telephone company, and service was awful. And uh, if you looked around, you would say to the U.S., well, why should we deregulate our telephone companies? Every country in the world runs a government-run telephone company. Why, sh why should we do that? Well, uh, we thought, thought it through and said, you know what, deregulated phone companies might be a good idea, and look what we've got now. I mean, we've got – not you would be sitting on the rotary dials of the 1960s rather than the, uh, unbelievably cheap cell phone service. You know, long-distance calls used to call, cost a lot of money. Um, it wasn't free via Skype. Your, your listeners might not know that. Uh, similarly with uh, television. So everybody thought, oh, well, you have to have government-run television. You can't let free market run television and radio. Every country in the world was more, uh, was more regulated than the U.S. We thought about deregulating it. May deregulating it worked. Uh, transportation, airlines, trucks. Uh, for a long, long time, had been essentially where, oh, you can't let the free market work for that. They won't, they won't serve the small communities and so forth. Uh, every other country regulated more than we do. Uh, we took the lead deregulating it. And uh, you may not like air travel, but air travel is unbelievably cheaper than it was in the 1970s before deregulation. Uh, post office, so, you know, that's a natural monopoly. We, we can't have... Uh, and every country in the world monopolized its package delivery. We let FedEx and UPS in. Hey, guess what? The free market can provide, even in something that looks like a natural monopoly, uh, the free market can provide us much better service, much lower prices if allowed to do so. So, um, and, and democracy itself, you know, 200 years ago, uh, you look around the world and say, oh, pff, you, you can't have a country run itself as a republic. Every country in the world is a, is a monarchy. You need the benevolent aristocracy to tell the little peasants what to do. They'll, they'll just, uh, the whole thing will fall apart if you try to have elections. Well, you know, we may have a chaotic country, but it's a system that worked pretty well. So I, I just because other countries don't do it seems to me like a silly argument. So I guess my last question would be, if we, you know, right now, uh, clearly people are, we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. What would be some steps that you think are possible, maybe not in the next year, but in five and 10 years, if we really start to change people's minds about free market health here, what are some steps, the first kinds of steps that you would hope that lawmakers um, would move towards? Well, I think before lawmakers move, people have to move, which is why, why I write op-eds. <laughs> um, uh, people in the U.S. have to understand that um, they, they could buy their uh, health medicine the same way they buy their plastic surgery and their veterinary medicine. They, they could, there is a system out there and they could have it uh, where, where they pay for stuff, yes, out of pocket, but they have huge amounts more money in their pocket to do that paying for. Um, because they're they're not paying for health insurance through um, you know a very expensive government or uh, business way, uh, and that they will be provided with uh, very high quality, very innovative, very cost effective healthcare. 
that they pay for. They will have they will have insurance to cover as they have home insurance to cover big unplanned expenses, uh, and that this is the, this is a viable system that they could want and that they should ask their legislators for, and that the only reason they're not getting it is because large interests, the doctors, the hospitals, the insurance companies, the regulators, and so forth, are are carving up the pie to keep them from it. So first, people have to ask for it. You, uh, many people in Washington understand this, uh, but how can a legislator get that far ahead of his constituents? You know, they got to get reelected. So there's a market there too. But step two, we we don't have to jump to libertarian nirvana and and uh, in order to improve things. So you can take little steps along the way. First. Um, rather than, as under the ACA, uh, really institutionalize employer-provided group plans, no. Let's get everyone in the country moved to individual health insurance that is portable across, guaranteed renewable, uh, portable across jobs and state lines. That's not that hard to do. Um, you, just, you just say, instead of group plans, we're going to have individual plans. Allow it. I mean, right now it's, it's illegal. Uh, allow employers to contribute to an individual plan that you buy ahead of time and keep with you when you go. Uh, that's a, that's um, in some sense radical, but actually, you know, that doesn't require eliminating every single regulation that there is out there. And then, um, you know, every bit of getting out of the way that you do uh, in, enhances supply. Um, so let, you know, let the cash only hospitals and the wall clinics spring up and serve people who, uh, you know, have, have money and not health insurance, serve the high deductible market. Um, I, I think the, the, uh, flowers of freedom can grow up alongside the, the huge, uh, problems. We don't have to get rid of the whole regulated system. We just have to let the, the flowers of supply and, and demand work. Uh, in, in little ways along the side, and, and then people will see that it works and it can take over. So we'll put a link up to uh, your paper, but where can people follow your work? Uh, my work's easy to find. You just Google me, <laughs> and I have a web page uh, at Chicago Booth, and I have a blog called The Grumpy Economist. So if you Google John Cochran and, and or Google The Grumpy Economist, uh, you'll find all sorts of uh, all of my writings on health and uh, other stuff. John, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My takeaway from this interview, and there's a lot of good stuff here, but I think the thing I would say above all is that healthcare is not different. The same economic forces that make markets work in every other industry would make the healthcare industry innovative, efficient, and affordable. But the problem is precisely that we have nothing close to a free market in healthcare. And even before the ACA, even before Obamacare, government was spending more than 50 cents out of every dollar uh, spending on health care. Competition was suppressed by an endless catalog of regulations. The health insurance market was so distorted that it has virtually nothing in common with the genuine insurance market. Now, how did we get there? In part, bad economics. Not nearly enough people understand competition or understand prices or the profit motive but the deeper issue is philosophic. As Yoram Brook and I discuss in our book, Free Market Revolution, virtually all of these regulations and controls were driven by a view that says that self-interest is immoral and destructive, and so we need to regulate greedy profit seekers, whether they be hospitals, doctors, or insurers. And on the other side, we need to create countless welfare schemes in order to provide people with, quote, free health care. 
Now, part of what I think this interview helps us see is that if we understand self-interest and how it operates in a free market, in a genuine free market, the usual reasons for condemning it as immoral and destructive don't hold any water. In a truly free market, the self-interest of the doctor, the hospital, the insurer, and the patient are all in harmony. And the result is that you see a constant push for increased choice, innovation, efficiency, quality, and affordability. There's no dichotomy, in other words, between wanting to see your patients benefit or wanting your customers to sleep soundly at night without having to fear being bankrupt by sudden medical costs and with wanting to reap huge profits for yourself. So what we have to fear when it comes to healthcare is not people pursuing their self-interest, but people not being free to pursue their self-interest. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.